The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, good morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you haven't this morning, to the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. We are finishing off a series looking at the seven churches in Revelation this morning by looking at the church in Laodicea. Just a little uh, preview, next week we are kicking off actually a four-part series looking at the songs of Christmas. There's four different songs in Luke chapter 1 and 2 that are sung during the Christmas story, so we're going to be each week kind of looking at one of those songs. But today we're finishing off Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to 22. Well, I don't know about you, but I hope you had a great Thanksgiving and that your food coma is starting to move away from your body. When I sit down to eat Thanksgiving, it is a very strategic meal for me. You know, you have your big plate that you stack full of food. And then if your house is like where I was, I was at my parents' house, you have another plate with more food on it because one big plate's not enough. You have your other food. And then I think strategically through how I eat, because I always want to save something at the end that I really, really like, right? And so that best bite comes right at the end. For me, that is hands down, of course, the sweet potato casserole with all the marshmallows on top of it, right? Because it's, it's kind of like dessert, but it's potatoes. So you can tell yourself it's not too healthy, right? Or it is, it's not too bad, not too healthy. It's not too bad for you that it is healthy. So, but, but it, this idea, this expression, save the best for last. Well, what we have today in the church in Laodicea is kind of the opposite of, for that. In fact, what has happened here is we've saved the worst for last. This church, as we'll look at, is, has undoubtedly the harshest message from Jesus and is in the worst spiritual condition. But I would argue for us that since it is the worst church in their spiritual state, that the message that Jesus gives to us from this is actually perhaps the most encouraging and uplifting message for last, given their spiritual state, but what Jesus has to say To them. So let's read it together. Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. 
Well, each week we walk through a similar five-part outline that each of these structures have for each of these seven sermons. And so we'll do that again this morning. The first part is the Christ title. What does Jesus identify himself as? And we see this in verse 14. He identifies himself as three things, the amen, the true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Those are most likely an allusion to an Old Testament text found in Isaiah chapter 65, primarily 65 verses 16 and 17, which read this. So that he who blesses, so that, excuse me, so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. For behold, I'm creating a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So his first title that Jesus identifies himself is the words of the Amen. The word amen, we still use it today, right? To close a prayer, the, the word amen, it, it literally means let it be so, or a, a spiritual way of saying like true that, or I am in agreement, which is why collectively we say amen, because what we're saying is what was just prayed, we are also agreeing with this person, agreeing with their prayer and wanting those things to be true in our lives. And so it's a, a term of agreement, of, of speaking truth over something, It's used almost 130 times in the New Testament. What's unique is this right here is the only time it's used as a name. That Jesus identifies himself as the amen. And this is a reference back to Isaiah 65 because amen could be translated truth as well. And so in the Greek translation of Isaiah 65, it actually says by the God of truth, the Greek translation there says the God of amen the God of amen. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking an Old Testament text to talk about God and applying it to himself. And so by doing claiming divinity, Jesus by this title of being the amen is claiming that he is God. Keeping with this theme of truthfulness is the faithful and true witness. Jesus is saying that, that you can trust my message. There's a reliability to what he is about to communicate and to say to this church. Lastly, the beginning of God's creation. Not, not at all saying that Jesus was created, but some translations take that phrase saying beginning could mean origin or ruler. It's a word that has several different contexts. And so by saying he's the beginning means that creation flows from and through Jesus. So he has authority and is the ruler over all creation and over all things. And so that's this title that Jesus gives to himself. Second, we see the commendation. What are the good of the church that Jesus has to say to them? Well, for the second time we see it's nothing. It's nothing at all. Jesus looks, says, I know your works, which is how he normally starts, and he doesn't have anything good to say to them. In fact, this is the harshest phrase or the harshest letter, because even if you remember that he's done this to one other church, the church in Sardis, and earlier in chapter three, but we see here in chapter three, verse four, he says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. There was still like a few people who hadn't fallen prey to this, this horrible things that Jesus were talking about. In Laodicea, there's no few. There's no, this is some of you, but there's still a few of you who are holding on. This is, this is a collective message of, of no, no commendation to them. And so the passage moves quickly then to the third part of the outline, the complaints. What does Jesus have against this church? And I like how one scholar sectioned this part of his, of his book. He said, it's, the complaint is that Laodicea is the church of vomit and vanity. The church of vomit and vanity. We see the first complaint, there's two. The first complaint is that this church is lukewarm. 
lukewarm, right? That, that you are neither hot nor cold, but that you are lukewarm. Now, what Jesus is not meaning here is he's not saying that I would rather have you reject Jesus than be indifferent to him. These terms, hot, cold, and lukewarm are not references to one's spiritual state. Sometimes it's thought that, if you're like me, I remember as a kid being told that. Jesus would rather have you reject him completely than, than just be kind of ho-hum about Jesus, be, be on, on the fence, neither hot nor cold. Well, what he's saying here is different. See, cold and lukewarm are never used in scripture to refer to your spiritual status of your heart. And even hot is very rarely used. But what he's talking about here. It's interesting too, because cold here is seen as a good thing. Look at verse 15. Would that you were either hot or cold. I wish, he's saying, I wish you were cold and not lukewarm. So what is he referencing? Because cold and hot are both seen as good things. Well, as we've seen here, these letters are very specific to cultures and geography to the place they're written. And that's the same here to this church in Laodicea and where it finds itself geographically located and the water supply of the cities directly around it. See, Laodicea was located on the Lycus River in the Lycus River Valley. And we have a map here right, right next to it were two other towns. Six miles away was the city of Heropolis and 10 miles down was the city of Colossae. That's the same that we get the book of Colossians from in the New Testament. And what he's talking about with hot or cold are references to the water in both of these towns that would have been well known by the people in Laodicea. First to Heropolis, six miles away, straight up the valley, they would have been able to see it as it resided up on the cliff. Heropolis was known and still is known for its hot springs. You can still go today to Turkey in Heropolis and bathe in the ancient hot springs of Heropolis. Not very far outside, it's these beautiful white cliffs from all the minerals that come out of the hot springs. There's a very, very popular tourist destination. And so if you've ever had a chance to travel and go in natural hot springs outside, you know, it is a very, first, it's just very cool. I remember years ago, my wife and I went to Iceland and it was so surreal to go in these very, it feels like you're in a spa out in nature. But they were known to have very healing effects that people would travel from all over to Heropolis for these hot springs. They were healing and it was known for that. And he's saying, well, up, up road, you have Heropolis known for its hot springs. What about the other way? 10 miles down, you have the ancient city of Colossae which if, even if you look at a picture, which we have of the ruins of Colossae, you'll see in the background mountains. In fact, back in the day, it was called Mount Candace. Now it's uh, Mount Honez. It's a national park and it's over 8,400 feet tall at the top. And what was unique about where the city of Colossae was located is once the snow started to melt, it formed into a river and you'd have freezing cold water flow right to the city of Colossae. Now think back 2,000 years, there's no refrigeration, there's no ice. Having cold water was an amazing natural resource that very few places had. And Colossae had ice, cold, fresh snowmelt water. And there's nothing like on a hot day having a glass of really cold water to refresh and to restore. And so what he's doing here is he's saying, hey, listen, right next to you, you have a place known for its hot water, for its cold water, but you are lukewarm. What he's saying by that is the hot water is good for something. The cold is good for something. Lukewarm, it's not good for anything. That when I look at you, there's nothing, there's nothing appealing. There's nothing attractive about you. Go to a coffee shop after church today and ask to see their lukewarm menu, right? You have a hot coffee, you have cold coffee. Ask for room temperature coffee. They'll be like, are you feeling okay, sir? Like what's going on? Like, why do you want, why would you want lukewarm, either hot or cold? 
And because of this, because their works are so disgusting, what is Jesus' response in verse 16? I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, this is almost too soft of a translation, where some put it even harder. There is a Greek word for spit, kind of like just if you get something in your mouth and spit it out. That's not this word. This is the word for vomit or throw up. Jesus is saying, I cannot stomach you. You are so revolting to me that I am throwing you out of my mouth. I am barfing you up. I am vomiting because your works are so disgusting to me that that I cannot stomach you at all. That when he looked at this church, when he looked at their works, they were useless. They weren't refreshing. They weren't restorative as these other places were known, but were lukewarm. And so Jesus says, I will spit you out of my mouth. So that's the first complaint. The second the complaint is of their vanity, or as one scholar put it, their sin of smug self-sufficiency. Look at, look at how they would talk about themselves, the church in Laodicea, verse 17. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. The first word in that phrase in the Greek is actually, for you say, rich, I am. And it's there three times, not because he's being redundant, but it's there for emphasis on this is the motto of the people of Laodicea, that they don't need help from anybody or anything. They are self-sufficient on their own. Many earthquakes destroyed places in modern-day Turkey. We talked about that last week with the church at Philadelphia. In Laodicea, the city was destroyed in AD 60 by an earthquake. But it makes historians know, outside of the Bible, historians know how unique it was because when Rome came to Laodicea to give them funds to rebuild their city, they refused. They would not take Rome's help and they said, we will rebuild it ourselves. We don't want help from anyone else. We are sufficient as we are. They thought of themselves as rich, as prospered and not needing help from anyone else. But what does Jesus diagnose them as? You say this, but you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. These five adjectives to describe their spiritual condition. He says, you, you are wretched. The only other time that word is used in the New Testament is in Romans 7, where Paul cries out, what a wretched man I am. It's a strong term for spiritual condition pitiable is the second word. That's only also occurs one other time in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians of all people are most to be pitied. That the sadness of your state, if the resurrection isn't true. He's saying these two words describe them. And then these others, these poor, blind, and naked, we'll look at in a moment when it comes to the fourth part. These are reminiscent of their spiritual condition as well. So the fourth part of the section here that we have towards this church is the correction. What we've, seen, we've seen the complaints that they're lukewarm, their works aren't at all pleasing to God, and they think they're self-sufficient. They're trying to do it on their own, even though they cannot, and they're in a sad spiritual state. The fact that there is a correction at all to this church is a measure of God's grace, right? God can't even stomach them at all, but he still gives them Wisdom, he gives them advice. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy. He's playing on their own self-sufficiency, their own wealth. Like you think you got it all together? This would be my advice on what you actually need to purchase with all of this wealth that you rely upon. And all three of the corrections that he's about to give are also references to cultural things in Laodicea. First is he counsels to buy them from them gold refined by fire so that they may be rich. 
Now, Laodicea was known as a banking establishment in the area, and it was proud of its banking system. And so Jesus is playing on this and says, you need gold, but not actual gold. You need gold that's been refined by fire. This is a status, you need the, the, what can only come from Jesus, not physical wealth. This is what you need so that you could truly be rich. The second thing is you need white garments. You need white garments so that you may clothe yourself and hide the shame of your nakedness. This idea of nakedness is being without righteousness, you know, and standing apart from God. But with God, you can be clothed with his righteousness. White is a sign of, of purity and, and of holiness as well. And it's interesting because Laodicea was known, it had a large textile industry, but it was known in the ancient world for the black wool that was produced in Laodicea. Many historians talk about the wool there being as black as a raven was a phrase that's often used to describe the clothes that came from Laodicea. And here is a place known for its black wool. And Jesus is saying, put on white garments instead. See, be seen as holy and pure because of relationship with me rather than how you've been living. And thirdly, put on salve to anoint your eyes that you may truly see. See, in Laodicea, there was a large medical school and ancient historians talk about the ophthalmologists, the eye surgeons and eye care that actually happened in Laodicea. Several of the methods in the ancient world came from this school, including a famous salve back in the day. And he's saying, okay, your place is known for its eye medicine. You need to put some on yourself so you can see your own spiritual state. So you can see that you are truly blind. You think you have sight, but you are truly blind. Why does Jesus give them this correction? Verse 19 to those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Like a parent out of love disciplines and corrects their own child. Jesus is saying, you've lived this way. I can't stand you, but I'm doing this out of my love for you. So be zealous, be passionate and repent. Turn away from your sin, turn back and follow after me. Fifth, we see the consequence. What happens if they do or what happens if they don't do what Jesus has given to them? Now, what's interesting is in almost every other section, there's, it starts with a negative consequence. If you don't do this, this will happen. And then a positive. If you do what I'm asking you to do, this is what will happen. Of all the churches that's so shocking in Laodicea, we only see two positive consequences. To this church that has nothing good to say about it, Jesus highlights the positive on if they will turn, if they will repent of their sin, recognizing the love of Christ. The first is this idea of opening the door. In verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in with him and eat with him and he with me. This idea of, of sharing a meal is this concept of fellowship, of close friendship and intimacy with God. That if you will turn from your sin, if you will repent and come back, that Jesus will open a relationship with you should you open the door to him. Table fellowship here is also likely going against all of the pagan religions of the time, which revolved around meals. And Jesus is saying a true meal, a true fellowship will exist with God, with me, if you would simply open the door to me, because I am knocking. The second consequence in verse 21 to, to him who conquers, the one who conquers, who overcomes, who has victory, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. 
Just as Jesus conquered and sat down, he's inviting us, if we conquer, to sit down with him. Now, it's not us sitting on our own thrones. This is in the book of Matthew. Jesus is saying, if any of you overcome, if any of you conquer, you'll sit on thrones in the kingdom. Notice whose throne we're sitting on in heaven. We're sitting on Jesus's throne next to him. It's this idea that our victory is directly tied to Jesus. And it's not something we earn, but we are a part of Jesus's victory. This idea that believers will rule and reign with Jesus if we follow him, if we are granted this eternal life that Jesus offers to every single one of us. So what are four lessons from this church in Laodicea? Four lessons that we can take and apply into our lives today. First is this, there is a great danger in believing you are self-sufficient. There is great danger in believing you are self-sufficient. Have you ever met someone who had a little too much self-confidence? Who had a little overestimation of their own gifts and talents and abilities? I remember back when I was in college, I helped, um, I volunteered at an after-school tutoring program. And I remember lots of the kids there were very thankful that, you know, college students would come and help them. And there was one kid, I remember him, who he was a lot of fun to play with on the playground and play basketball with. And then you'd go inside for homework. Oh, he was so hard to work with because this kid clearly needed the help. But almost every week when I would sit down with him, he'd be like, I don't need you. I'm going to do this on my own. Watch me. I'd be like, all right, I'll watch. And he pulled his math problem. And like two seconds later, I'm like, you're, you're off already, right? But every week he's like, no, no, I got this. I don't need help from anyone. I can do it myself, right? And we, we see this idea of self-sufficiency in this church, man, we're rich. We've prospered. We don't need anything. See, there is a slow and subtle slide from being self-confident, which is a good thing. Be confident in who you are and who God has made you to be. But there's a slow and subtle slide where we move from being confident in who we are to thinking that we are sufficient and we don't need help with anything in our lives. See, the sin of self-sufficiency is a sin of successful people. The sin of self-sufficiency is a sin that plagues successful people, right? Because if your life is plagued by failure, if you look back at your marriages, at your parenting, at your friendships, at your job, at your finances, and it's all a train wreck, you're not like, oh, I got this under control. You're like, no, my life is in shambles. I need help. But what about for the person who's like, you know what? I've worked hard my whole life. I started the company. I put myself through college. I'm self-made. I did it. I got the job. I made the career. I got married. I have the family. I've done all of this out of my own hard work. What's easy to think is, man, all of my life, I have been rewarded and had success through my own human efforts. I can do this with God too. I can just rely on my own strength, my own abilities, and that will be enough. That's what this church thought. They said, hey, we, we didn't even need help from Rome. And everyone else said, we pulled ourselves up and we outworked and we were fine. So we'll do that. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. When it comes to your spiritual state, apart from me, every single person is wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And the people who are the most danger are those who refuse to even see their own spiritual condition because they think they can do it on their own. Be careful if you've lived a life of success in many areas because it's easy to allow self-sufficiency to flow into how we think about God and the sin in our lives as well. The second lesson from this church is this, is that all we have as Christians, all we have is because of Jesus. All we have as Christians is for one reason, it's because of Jesus. And he highlights this in two ways in this passage. 
First, when, when showing them their spiritual condition, then in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from where? From me. He sees their spiritual condition. He says, there's only one fix to you being poor, blind, and naked, to being wretched and pitiable. There's only one fix. You need Laodicea what only I have to offer. That Jesus alone can solve the problems, can fix this spiritual condition on the state in which they find themselves. The solution is only found in Jesus. And then for those of us who are Christians, even our victory is tied to Jesus. This phrase in verse 21, the one who conquers has been in all seven of the, of the chapters, excuse me, all seven of the churches. And it could be easy to think, well, to the one who conquers is the one who's the super Christian, the one who's done their homework, who's studied the Bible hard enough, who's prayed hard enough that they conquer because of their own human efforts. But he makes specific here what's been inferred throughout. We conquer, why? Because Jesus also conquered and sat down with him. Our victory is not because of our human efforts or because our work. We have victory because Jesus is victorious and we have a relationship with him. Not because of the works we've done, but because of what he's done. We have victory because Jesus has already conquered. I was thinking this week of, of how, of how to, to illustrate this and help us see this victory to attached to someone else. And I thought of a thing I saw two weeks after Sunday Night Football, two weeks ago, um, when the San Francisco 49ers beat the Chargers on Sunday Night Football, I believe it was. And they interviewed the quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, after the game. And they threw up this stat with Jimmy Garoppolo. If you can read the stat, Jimmy Garoppolo is 10 and a 2 record and starts with zero touchdown passes the best record by any quarterback since 1950. And the little slogan, when you do nothing on the group project, but still get an A, right? Why is Jimmy Garoppolo 10 and two in games in which he does not even score a touchdown? Because he's on the right team, right? It's not, no one sees him. And it's like, wow, that must mean he's a really good quarterback. It's like, no, he has really good teammates. He only has victory all those times. Why? Because he's on the right team and he has victory. Why? Because his teammates help him win, not because of anything he's done. It's not because of him. It's because of the people around him that help him win. See, as Christians, you have victory, not because of your own righteousness, not because of your own efforts, not because of what you've done. You have victory for one reason alone. You're on Jesus's team and he's conquered. He's won. He's defeated death. He rose from the dead and you have victory, not because of how great your performance is, not because of how great your life is, not because of how faithful you are. You have victory coming to you. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. And if you place your faith in him, you're a part of his team. You're a part of the family of God. And our victory is tied to Jesus's victory. All we have as Christians is because of Jesus. That's why he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not through our own efforts, but who gives us victory through Jesus. That's why as Christians, humility is the natural byproduct of our salvation because it's not about us. It's not what we've done at all. It's all about Jesus and what he has done for us. The third lesson from this church is that Jesus's desire for us is for a deep relationship. Jesus's desire is for deep relationship with us. We see the heart of Jesus coming through in this passage. In verse 19, this is written to those whom I I love. I'm saying these truths to you, Laodicea, because I love you. And that's why I'm disciplining you. That's why I'm telling you the truth, because, because I love you. And I've come to your door and I've knocked. 
And if you would hear me, if you would hear me cry out from behind this closed door and open up to me, what will I do? I will come in with you and I will eat with you and you will eat with me. This idea of Jesus eating and having fellowship is, is a very strong language. It misses in our cultural context. But sharing a meal with someone 2,000 years ago was a high sign of relational intimacy, a high sign of friendship. It meant that you were equals, you were on the same page, that you were close. This is why if you think about, if you know the story of Jesus when he lived here on earth, that one of the things that the religious people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, what were they so so mesmerized by, by Jesus that they kept calling out, they kept asking his disciples, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he eat with these people? Why does he have relationship with them? Well, why does Jesus eat with sinners and tax collectors? Because for eternity, Jesus will be eating with sinners like you and like me. Jesus was simply modeling in his life on earth what he will do for all of eternity. And that is have fellowship with people who are far from God because of what he will do for them. That he he desires deep relationship with us. See, Christianity is not about this set of rules to follow, though there are morals that we believe in. Christianity is not even primarily about these abstract theological beliefs, although we have beliefs about God. Christianity is about a relationship with Jesus. He desires to come to us and he's done all he can and he asks us, will you open the door so I can eat with you? I want to know you. I want to be with you. His desire is for deep relationship which leads us to the fourth lesson from this church. And that's simply this, Jesus is knocking, will you answer? Jesus is knocking, will you answer? What is so crazy is not that Jesus writes these words in verse 20, that I stand at the door and knock. If you hear me and open the door, I will come in. What's crazy is who he writes this to. This is the church where he doesn't say, a few of you are still doing good. This is the church he looks at him and says, you're so far from me, I can't even stomach you. I'm I'm vomiting you out of my mouth. You are so sinful, you are so wretched, you are so pitiable. But if you would just open the door, I'll come and be with you. This is not to the group of people who got their life together, who looked really religious and who were doing the right things. And then Jesus is like, oh, okay, no, to you, I wanna have a relationship with you. He goes to the worst church, to the worst people and invites them to have a relationship with them. See, by saying that Jesus opens, he comes to the door and he's knocking, that, that's a reminder that Jesus has already done all that is needed. Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sin. He defeated death by rising from the dead. The work has been done. Jesus has done it all. And he comes to you and he knocks on the door and says, I've done all that's necessary for salvation. You only have to do one thing. You have to open the door. He's he's done all he has and his grace is extended to every single person. But it's up to every single one of us if we open the door or not. Notice that when he started to address them, he said, I counsel you to do this. He's not gonna strong arm you into belief. He's not gonna manipulate you into his family, but he's there. He's done all that's necessary. And all that he asks for you to do is to respond in faith and believe what he has done for you. Romans 10, 13 says this, for everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Doesn't matter how good or bad your life has been, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 
I'd like to invite the, the worship team up. We're going to close our service in a minute with a song. But I want to ask you the question this morning. Have you opened the door of your life to Jesus? Have you responded in faith to believe in him for what he says in scripture that he has done for you? See, Jesus is knocking at every single one of our hearts. And if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you want this victory, if you want this life, if you want the forgiveness of sins and the freedom that's promised in him, all you have to do is to respond in faith to the grace that Jesus offers you. He's done all that's needed. Jesus is knocking. Will you answer today? So let's bow our heads. Let's close our eyes as we pray together. And if you've never made that commitment, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I would just encourage you just to pray and repeat the words with me as we close the sermon and prayer. Jesus, we are thankful for who you are. Jesus, I'm not worthy of your love. Jesus, I'm not worthy of your grace. But I open my life to you today. I place my faith in what you've done for me. That you died on the cross. And that you rose from the dead. Jesus, I trust in you today to forgive my sin. Jesus, we thank you that you have come to save sinners of whom we are the worst. And that the testimony of so many of us this morning is we found ourselves in a wretched, pitiable place, but you knocked at our door and we opened our lives to you and you've changed us forever. We are so grateful for what you've done, for the change you've made in our lives, for the salvation. It's all about Jesus and what you've done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.